Hello and welcome to The REIT Report. I'm your host, Sarah Borks from Quito, and today we're focusing on the latest trends and developments surrounding the office real estate sector with my guest, Julie Whelan. Julie is head of Occupier Research for the Americas at CBRE. Julie, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me again, Sarah. So I wanted to start by asking you to describe the type of office occupancy trends you're currently seeing and how they differ in terms of geography, industry sector, and the size of company. Sure, Sarah. So first, I think it's important to define what we mean by office occupancy. When I talk about office occupancy in this context, I really define it as how many employees are visiting the office to do their work today versus doing so remotely still. And the reality is that that remains very low today compared to pre-pandemic levels. I would say that the best estimates that we have are that we are still nationally only at about a third of what was considered normal before the pandemic. Now, the good news is that we do see sentiment shifting in this space. So I would say that most companies that I talk to are really expecting a more pronounced return to the office, really starting in the fall timeframe and continuing throughout the rest of 2021. Now, the question is, well, why is fall that magic period? And I think that the turning point is because the leisure of summer is going to kind of abate and we're going to be back into sort of that normal routine that we see in the fall, typically after a summer period. People are going to have the ability to put new childcare routines in place as schools hopefully go back to in-person learning. And throughout all this and throughout the summer, hopefully vaccine adoption is going to continue to tick up. So all of those things are going to kind of point to a more pronounced return in the fall. But the return to the office is really a local discussion, much like sort of COVID was um, as, as it was in its height last year. So it's really hard to make generalized statements. If you look around the nation, you look today at markets like Texas, so Austin, Dallas, Houston, they really are probably experiencing the largest return to the office today, and they're back at around half of pre-pandemic occupancy. Now, when you look at the vaccination rates in Texas, some parts of Texas lag the overall U.S. vaccination rate. And so the fact that they are much more back to the office than other metros around the area is interesting, because then you look at markets like California and New York that actually have the lowest office occupancy today, yet their vaccination rates are above the U.S. average. So it causes you to sit back and say, well, what's the biggest difference here? And the biggest differentiator that I see is really dependence on mass transit to get to work. So very few people in Texas are dependent on mass transit, whereas you have these sort of primary gateway markets that are very dependent on transit, and it's an essential piece of people getting back to work. So I think that we need to put much more of a focus of getting people comfortable on mass transit again, getting mass transit back to normal schedules and route, making sure that people feel not only safe from a health point of view, but also from a physical point of view, and hopefully, you know, incentivizing somehow through maybe lower fares or different routes or, or you know, different schedules, how to get people back. And until this happens, I think that the reduced ridership is really only going to sustain that kind of reduced occupancy in buildings that we're seeing. Now, you also asked from an industry perspective, and that's a, another interesting nuance that we're seeing because when you look across industries, you see law firms and lab occupiers that have really led the return to office for two different reasons. First, lab op occupiers are really dependent on the tools in the office to get their job done in the lab space, right? 
Whereas you have law firms that are just culturally more adept to being in the office historically on a more regular basis. And so that is why those two sort of industries have really driven the return. But then you have knowledge-based industries like the tech firms, financial services, consulting firms, and they've really sort of lagged a return to the office, especially those firms that have huge employee populations that are decentralized throughout the U.S. And these are the companies that have taken a much more slow approach, a much more measured approach to return to the office because they're trying to balance sort of company policy with local jurisdictional requirements and the health and safety of the individuals in their organizations. So it's a complex equation. I think that generally, you know, we've seen smaller companies return to the office the quickest because they are much more dependent on an office culture and they have to have less policies and less measures put in place to really get back to that return. However, those companies that are really driving a lot of the numbers that we see are those big companies that have tens of thousands of employees that are really taking a much more slow and measured approach to this return. Now, hybrid and flexibility are really watchwords for employees today. How would you say employers are responding to that? And do you anticipate to see some tension in this area going forward? Yes. So hybrid and flexibility are definitely watchwords. And they're watchwords in the sense that I think a lot of companies have a unified belief that they need to move to a hybrid workplace policy. And what that means is it's a policy where employees are really given enhanced flexibility over how they work, where they work, and when they work. Now, the challenge and the tension comes with how to mobilize this unified belief across tens of thousands of employees in different geographies, in different functions, and with different desires that are really motivating them. So that's where the complexity comes in, is not the idea of flexibility, but really how to mobilize it. And so when we look across our spectrum of clients, we see a lot of companies, especially tech ones, that are communicating extremely clear guidance today around how their employees are really expected to engage with the office when they do return. But when you think about this guidance, I you know, put it akin to looking up at a gigantic board of ice cream flavors. And there are endless flavors and combinations of hybrid that every single company can arrive at. And many just don't know which ones they want to implement. But they really need to decide on a flavor because clear guidance is going to be a really essential tool to reduce chaos and confusion when the return to office really ramps up in the fall. And I think what's really important to understand, though, is that even with clear guidance, most companies recognize that we are in uncharted territory right now. We don't have a lot of history to look on to guide our future decisions in this space. And so what that means is that everybody really has to leave the opportunity open for course correction so that once they do obtain observable trends, they can course correct based on what's working and what isn't. Now, you talk about tensions, and we see some pretty consistent questions coming up. Number one, how do we create an element of predictability around when people are going to come into the office versus when they're going to work out of the office? And how prescriptive do companies need to be around that before employees actually feel like they're losing that flexibility that they desire? Second, even if an employee does work out of the office sometimes, well, what kind of funds do we need to spend on them and what kind of stipends do we need to give to them to make sure that they are supported in their chosen work environment? Another one is if an employee is allowed to work remotely, 
full-time or even move to a different geography, should we be adjusting their pay accordingly? How do we ensure that all employees, whether they're virtual or physically present, are offered real equitable opportunities to further their career? So these are real questions that are being tackled right now that are only going to become more apparent as employees return to the office and these really differences are seen. And it's just the tip of the iceberg because with all of the foreseeable tension points that I just laid out, we know that the structural shift can't be ignored and these all need to be kind of met head on. So I would say that how this all shakes out is yet to be seen, but what is true is that the shift is underway. It's leading to absolutely massive change, but the faults have been growing since before the pandemic and we're now just seeing these changes on the surface that we just can't ignore anymore. So, Julie, what about alternative workplaces, neither home nor the office? What potential do you see there? Well, alternative workplaces are an edge conversation right now, but they're growing in importance. And they're growing in importance because it's important to remember that hybrid policies are not requiring employees to make a unilateral decision between working at home or working in the office. At the core of hybrid policies, they're allowing employees freedom to choose where they work when they're not in the office. So what this means is that sometimes that freedom can mean they're working from home, but sometimes it may mean they're working from a corner coffee shop, in a recreation area, at a park, somewhere in transit. Basically, they can work anywhere that they have a mobile device that can connect to the internet. So what that means is that anywhere can be a substitute for office space. Now, this has created a lot of businesses to rethink how they service customers. So when you think about housing, there's been an increase in building home offices or common area offices into multifamily developments and even single home developments. Some restaurants that are actually closed during the day are choosing to open to serve as workspaces for the community during the day. Today, we see flexible office space or co-working. So that type of space that's consumed on demand instead of via a long-term lease, that's becoming a really important part of real estate strategies for occupiers. And we know that demand for that type of space has come back extremely strong already. I think that when you think about green spaces and public areas, we could end up seeing more deliberate meeting spaces that are equipped with power and Wi-Fi built into them that allow people to work while taking in the wellness benefits of actually being outside. So the options are really endless, but I know we're going to see extremely creative ways in the future that allow people the privacy, the power, the Wi-Fi they need to work almost anywhere on demand for short spurts of time as this drive to sort of work outside of the office becomes stronger. Great. And what are some of the office design changes you anticipate in response to the pandemic, both from a safety perspective and as a means to attract potentially reluctant employees? Yeah. So health and safety of employees is really at the forefront of every single occupier agenda. We survey our occupiers on a quite regular basis and Cost is usually what drives a lot of their agenda from a real estate perspective, but for the first time, we have seen health and safety really rise to meet cost as the priority subject for them. Now, the pandemic has definitely created the forum for that conversation and allowed more action in the area, but it has been generally recognized for quite some time that providing environments that focus on wellness is going to lead to a more engaged and motivated and happier workforce, which is what everybody's attaining to. But what wellness means is changing. So in the past, wellness meant things like 
offering healthy food options, offering access to hydration stations, as simple as that sounds, giving access to fitness options, providing outdoor spaces to work in around the building. And those things are still really, really important, but they are on the periphery. There's a lot of additional, somewhat more sophisticated elements of health and wellness that are really expanding today. So if we talk about one of them that's very imminent on the agenda, employers are taking a lead role in conversations and communications around vaccine awareness. So why are vaccines important? Where can their employees get vaccinated if they haven't been? Some are offering incentives to get vaccinated and others are even offering vaccinations on site if they have the resources to do that. So vaccinations we know are the key to getting reluctant employees back by reaching sort of a mass vaccination status and making people feel comfortable that those that are around them have been vaccinated. So employers are taking a very socially conscious role in getting there. Health screening protocols are also something that are going to remain in place for a lot of companies where employees at least attest, if not show their vaccination status and ensure that their health before they come to work. Now, beyond that sort of pandemic-related stuff, indoor air quality as it relates to the health and comfort of people in the building is really at the top of the list right now. So are the best systems in place in the building? Is ventilation and filtration in place? Can we measure air quality and make that measurement transparent to occupants so that they know that they're breathing in the best air available? So that is a very sophisticated offering and something that typically tenants have not really asked a lot of questions about that is absolutely growing on the agenda. And then from strictly a design standpoint, I think we do see some physical changes in the workplace beginning to emerge, but they're really emerging to satisfy a new way of working that's ultimately going to lead to happier and healthier employees, but they're not emerging as a result of prolonged physical distancing from the pandemic. Instead, you know, de-densification is happening. We do believe the trend towards densification is reversing, but it's a result of us building more spaces into workplaces to drive collaboration, to drive socialization. So creating more space that allows occupants more mobility to use the entire space instead of just previously the desk that was assigned to them. So a lot of changes coming, but doesn't mean that the old ways of providing wellness in the workplace are not important. We're just on a much more sophisticated journey to what wellness means in the future. And finally, given everything that you're seeing right now, what's the possibility for rent increases and where are they most likely to be seen first? So we're still at a point in the real estate cycle where rents are decreasing and vacancy is increasing because the supply and demand equation is very imbalanced right now. We do anticipate that this is going to be the story on average nationally until mid-2022, and that's when we expect that the recovery is really going to take hold in the office sector and we'll see the turning point to rents beginning to start the recovery that will take a number of years. But that being said, you know, rents and vacancies respond differently market to market sub-market to sub-market and definitely building to building. So at a gateway sort of level, at a, at a macro level, we expect that primary gateway markets are going to be the most volatile and they're going to take the longest to rebound because simply they were most impacted by the pandemic. We're still experiencing very low levels of employees going into the office. And until we see more observable trends in a steady state, it's going to be hard for them to begin their recovery. 
But the good news is that even in those primary gateway markets, the sentiment around tenant touring and the general sentiment of brokers is really increasing from a positive perspective, even in those markets today. Now, we have secondary markets, markets like Austin and Charlotte and Nashville that have enjoyed a lot of growth over the last cycle. And we expect them to be more resilient because they have the appropriate demographics and business dynamics in place to really boost their recovery more quickly. So there's definitely a difference between what's happening in the primary versus the secondary market. Now, even within those markets, there are differences. So suburban markets have tended to fare better during this pandemic than the downtown market that are historically more volatile in every downturn. Now, Now, what's different this time around is that downtown markets do typically recover more quickly in downturns, and it's going to be stood to be told whether or not that exists this particular cycle. Are downtown dynamics different this time around because of the implications of what the pandemic has created? And we're just not sure, and it's something that we're working with closely right now, but we do believe in a very bullish recovery for downtown markets, but whether they outpace the suburban market recovery has yet to be seen. And I think the most important thing to remember is that these are all generalizations and every single building carries its own story, depending on how old that building is, the types of amenities and services that are in that building, the rent roll that's in that building, the economics and the industry that support that building at a micro level. So although generally we have yet to see a turning point in the real estate recovery, we know it's looming and we know that there are pockets even today that are much more resilient than the overall picture. Great. Julie, thanks so much for your insights today. Great. Thank you for having me, Sarah. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe or leave a review on iTunes for your favorite podcast platform. 